That's our leadership job, is if we want to lead our folks, our youth, our parents, our families, to a new way of being, we're always working this balance. We are upping survival anxiety. We're saying, hey, here's what's at stake if we do or if we don't do this new thing. And then we're also lowering learning anxiety. So for act, asking our people to behave a different way, we need to we need to do things that that sort of lower their fears. Hey everyone, welcome to the Missing Voices podcast. This is Justin Forbes, your host, and you're listening to an episode within the Youth Ministry and COVID-19 series. Our hope is to lift up the reality of youth ministry in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. You know, none of us were prepared for this. And so we've done the best we can to go out and find folks who will help us think well about youth ministry in this new, hopefully temporary reality. We will lift up signs of hope and tell stories that are just beautiful. We'll talk about practical tools that might be helpful. And we'll also talk about hard things, the challenges that we're all facing as we seek to live out our calling to love God, to love kids, uh, and to do the best we can to be faithful witnesses to God's work in the world. So. I hope this is a gift to you. I hope there might be even just one thing that you can use and take away from this episode that will help you live into your calling as folks doing youth ministry. Enjoy. Okay, everybody, we've got Trey Wentz on the phone with us. Trey, are you there? I'm here. Trey's here. I was going to say, did we already lose Happy you? Happy to be alone. <laughs> so Trey is Trey's a, a, a funny cat. Trey is all over the place. Trey has done a bit of everything in the church um, and now is really uh, helping develop and lead new initiatives in the church. He has been a youth pastor, a lead pastor, a preaching pastor. Uh, most recently, he started working with the Greater New Jersey Annual Conference, developing new faith communities, and it sounds like a lot of leadership development, if, if I understand that correctly. Uh, and he's also working with ministry incubators and ministry architects. Real quick, will you tell us what is ministry architects and what is ministry incubators? And this is part of why uh, we're on the phone with you today. So if you could give us a quick uh, summary of those two entities. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, um, ministry architects has been around almost 20 years. It's sort of, it's more of your sort of classic uh, church consulting type organization. We work uh, a lot with systems and structures just to help make sure churches you know, have their processes in place so that they can do whatever it is they feel called to do well. So we, a lot of times we say we help, we help build the dance floor so the churches can dance how they want to dance. Um, and then incubators is, uh, yeah, you like, you like that image? I, I'm like going to stick with that one. That work. Um, <laughs> And then, and then incubators is kind of, this is more innovation. This is sort of leading edge folks who are in new frontiers. Uh, we're finding more and more faith forward people who are wanting to launch an initiative. They want to change the world. And they're just finding that their church isn't necessarily the place to launch that idea. And a lot of times it's some version of business, um, business's mission. And Ministry Incubators has been able to walk alongside these innovators help them put the systems in place to get their thing off the ground and sustainable as soon as possible. It's been a ton of fun. That's excellent. So that's part of why 
you know, we want to have you on this podcast right now to discuss youth ministry in the coronavirus era season. I don't know if we call it an era yet, uh, but it will be. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's going to be an era pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be uh, sort of a landmark of an experience. And so, um, you know, this this episode, this conversation is going to be a little different than some of our others. We've been talking with youth ministry and practical theology professors about, you know, resources and tools and, and what's going on and, and things like that. We've also had a couple conversations with youth ministers who are practitioners, sort of like frontline folks that are working day in and day out with kids. Uh, but this conversation with you, Trey, is more um, maybe not the 30,000 foot view, but like a low flying planes view. Okay. Um, (laughs) You're still connected to the reality. I mean, if you're going to build the dance floor, you're in there with people, right. To help them figure out how to right. Your metaphor. I think we should use that metaphor throughout this entire conversation and see how long it holds up. I'm going to beat that metaphor. Like we're going to get every ounce that we can get out of that metaphor. Don't worry. Yeah. You'll never use it again after this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the idea would be to say, okay, what what's happening? What opportunities are there? How do we manage ourselves and and this sort of situation? And so, you know, you do a lot of coaching, consulting, working with people as they're thinking through what this looks like. And one of the common themes that has bubbled up in almost every conversation I've had so far is that we have been stripped of the sort of crutches that we may have been leaning on in youth ministry and we're forced to go back to the core, to the basics of who we are. And so um, in that, I actually feel like there's a a really incredible opportunity to be critically reflecting and evaluating, okay, who are we? What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Um, And I'd love to have you just think with me out loud about that. So, you know, I guess on some level, I want to start with what do you see happening? Like, what do you... Uh, as you support youth workers and people in ministry, what are you seeing right now, and how are you navigating that with them? Yeah, you're, I think you're so dead on about a lot of our leaders. What they're saying, like they're just going analog. They're going old school because some of the old school stuff is working. Um, and by that, I mean I, I talked to one pastor who is just brilliant, and um, she's working with her young folks, and it's with a it's with a phone chain, like a good old fashioned phone tree that she put together. <laughs> But she's finding out, like, first of all, people are dying for that. Something about that feels intimate, and it's kind of scratching an itch that they yeah. weren't getting, you know, in endless Zoom calls. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, I just think you're dead on that. The, a couple of things. One, this is a time of innovation. Like, we're, we're actually being forced to try some new things. Mm-hmm. And two, uh, um, oddly enough, a lot of the things that are working are pretty old school. The new thing that we're trying is an old thing. Yeah, is the, is the old yeah. thing. That's exactly right. But yeah, I think bottom line, this is a, a, a time of forced innovation um, where we're all trying things new. I think, by the way, I'm pretty sure every quote ever gets a quote gets attributed to Winston Churchill. Um, but I'm actually not sure that this was him. Yeah, but anyway, there's some quote floating out there that says something like, never waste a crisis. Hmm. Um and so I do want to say, uh, this should go without saying, I'm going to talk about all these opportunities in this moment. This is yeah. a crisis. Like I'm in New Jersey, I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. So there's sort of pain and loss all around me in my circles. And, and I don't want to just gloss over that. Yeah. Um, there's, there's real grief happening. And I think it's only going to increase over the, you know, for a while at least. And um, so 
I'm just going to ask for forgiveness as I talk about opportunities in this moment, because that's mm -hmm. going on as well. And frankly, a lot of our work is going to be in pastoral care for that very reason. Absolutely. Um, but that said, uh, there, there is opportunity. There are new ways of behaving that we are getting permission to try because it's a crisis. And uh, we just kind of get this wide open window, you know, to try new things because n nobody quite knows what to do. Hmm. Um, one way I might say it is, uh, so we talk a lot about change management, about like leading your people to try new things or behave in new ways. And there's one really nerdy way, and I, I'm a, I definitely did not invent this. This came out from a brilliant mind out of Harvard um, who, who, who talks about uh, change management in two ways. He says, psychologically, um, we are, we're weighing between two different things. One is uh, uh, survival anxiety, and the other is learning anxiety. Survival anxiety and learning anxiety. And if you just, if you just picture a balance or a scale in your head, um, what they say is, uh, that's what our brains are doing all the time in determining whether or not we want to change. Huh. Um, yeah, so so survival, I'm sorry it uses the word anxiety because it's got a negative connotation, but uh, it's just the language they chose for whatever reason. Survival sure. anxiety is basically what makes us do something different than we would normally do in order to survive. Um, and so... Uh, you know, we're going to want to stick with whatever it is we're familiar with and what we like doing, um, unless we're faced with the reality that if we don't change, something very bad is going to happen. So the doctor says, listen, I love that you love eating red meat for every meal all day long, um, but your heart is not going to, you know, last another six months unless right. you change your diet. Well, that's survive in that moment, because there's clarity from an authority, your survival anxiety goes up. And it makes you, le you know, learn to, to behave a different way. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, either make this change to survive or don't and die. Yeah. There's total clarity there. It's not very yeah. heartwarming, but it's clarity. And your survival anxiety goes up and lo and behold, you change. You do something different. Um, at the other end of that scale um, or that balance, there is learning anxiety. And this is, this is not rocket science. It basically boils down like this. Um, people don't like to try new things because people don't like to feel stupid. That's huh. really it. Yeah. Um, every time we do something new, we feel dumb. We're not good at it. It's abnormal. Right. We're having to really engage our brain, and um, we don't enjoy doing that. Um, yeah. and, and so all of us, like we will actively choose to continue doing something that doesn't work because it's comfortable and we don't feel stupid when we do it. We're really good at doing this thing that doesn't work. I'm sure you've never experienced that in any church you've worked with. <laughs> <laughs> um, enter every uh, seasoned institution that has ever existed. <laughs> uh, yes. It's okay. so true. It's so true. This is, and this is like, I mean, there's, there's scripture for this one. This is like the people of Israel getting a few steps outside of Egypt and going, gosh, at least back in Egypt, we had some meat to eat. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like we just, we like what's familiar. It's more comfortable. We'll stick with it. So anyway, if you'll picture that in your head, all the change management literature in the entire world can really boil down to that picture, which so is, the we, question is, are we more anxious about learning something new? And exactly. Or are we more anxious about uh, survival? 
That and, is it. Okay. All right. And so that's, the, our, that's our task. You have to be convinced though, like even back to your red meat uh, example, like, um, you know, there are plenty of people who have been told that and then walk out and go, you know, that's not really the case. I probably don't actually really need to stop eating red meat, you know? So like communicating the clarity of the sort of crisis of the survival seems like that would be a really big deal because I already feel the learning anxiety. That's a loud voice inside of me, like my own self-protection, my desire to protect my ego and to look a certain way to everyone. That's already a loud voice. So you're, what you're saying though, is the survival anxiety, like that has to be really clear in order for it to even begin to compete with my like inherent uh, anxiety around learning. I don't know if I'm muddying the waters here, but that. No, you that's, I think that is the name of the game. You're, you're dead on. Um, so, so if we were to sort of dive deeper in this literature, what they call, what they say is required is a, um, a moment of disconfirmation. And so let's just say in a church, um, it's, it's usually done with data, just cold, hard data. And it, you know, it might, you know, to use something really stereotypical, the church might say, um, Hey, listen, um, rather than kid ourselves, uh, maybe we should look at our finances and recognize that every month they've gone down for three years. And if we put a trajectory out, it means we have 18 months left of survival. So hmm. maybe, maybe we should quit saying, well, it was rainy that day or well, the Titans were playing that day. That's why people didn't come to church. And we, yeah. we should just say, Hey, listen, the numbers don't lie. And this is how long we have. Well, that's cold, hard data. And it's called disconfirmation. So it's kind of like, hearing from the doctor, the authority, like your friends could tell you don't eat red meat, but when the doctor says it with utter, utter clarity, it, it counts for something a little more. Sure. Um, so yeah, that is part of our job as leaders. But I, I think what you just described is that's our leadership job is if we want to lead our folks, our youth, our parents, our families to a new way of being, we're always working this balance. We are upping survival anxiety. We're saying, hey, here's what's at stake if we do or if we don't do this new thing. And then we're also lowering learning anxiety. So for act asking our people to behave a different way, we need to we need to do things that that, that sort of lower their fears. Like we offer mm. train we offer trainings that make them feel more equipped to try this new thing. We offer some literature so they feel like they know what we're talking about. Um, we talk playfully about our mistakes when we screw up and people aren't so afraid about it. We just talk about yeah. it like failure is normal and they're not so, you know, it's not the end of the world. But right. uh, that's our job as leaders is to lower that learning anxiety and to increase the survival anxiety. Uh, the interesting thing about this moment, this, uh, what do we call it, a season? The, the coronavirus season sure it is for whatever reason not for whatever reason i think it's obvious um survival anxiety is through the roof yeah and learning anxiety we've gotten a free pass yeah uh, uh everybody everybody knows where things aren't normal so every family every parent every pastor everybody's like hey listen just try some stuff because none of us know what we're doing right <laughs> uh I think that I think that's the moment we don't want to waste. Um, we have been given a window to try something significantly new, and a people will play along because we're just trying anything. And b we we're we're kind of not in trouble if it fails. Um, yeah, because we're all trying that's new stuff. Right? Yeah, that's good. 
I think it would be really sad if we didn't step back and say, hey, um, it, like in, in a larger sense, is there a way that we want to behave in this ministry that's different? Are there habits? Are there annual habits, rhythmic habits, the ways we communicate um, that we want to do differently? Because if ever there was an open opportunity to, you know, to get to that place, I think right now is that time. So it's worth yeah. trying. I love it. So, okay, I want to go a little deeper into both of those, survival anxiety and learning anxiety, if that's okay. So uh, if, yeah. if crucial to survival anxiety is making it crystal clear that you're about to not survive, right? Um, mm-hmm. how, and that, that message has to be very clear and sort of repeated over and over again, uh, that there's a crisis in terms of a need to change or to reimagine or whatever. Now, obviously that's reinforced by the fact that we literally cannot do most of the things that we've done in the past. But I think a lot of people probably have in the back of their mind that like, this is a, you know, a month or two, maybe three, you know, whatever, sort of a pause and that everything's just going to go back to the way it was. And that we might as well just sort of hold this space for the moment um, rather than any sort of evolution and, um, any sort of like moving forward. So, I mean, how would you want to try and and communicate the the need to address your survival in this moment? Yeah, no, I think that's a really excellent question. So, um, there are a couple things going on. You know, I, I think you're right. That, that it's a hard sort of argument to make. Like, um, you know, how long this is going to last? This is what you know. Every third news article that comes through my phone is about. And mm-hmm. when will things be back to normal? And all that fun stuff. Um, what I do think is is fairly irrefutable um, is that the world has gone through a significant trauma. Um, is that um, that there will be uh, economic ramifications for a long time? That we're right. going to sort of feel the aftershocks of this in waves for a long, long time, um, mm-hmm. and that however it plays out, youth uh, in particular. Um, are going to need added support, higher quality support than maybe we felt like we needed just two months ago. Interesting. Um, and so uh, that argument, I don't think is very hard to make. I think we can say, hey, listen, um, we need to have a system in place to care for people who might be you know, facing real trauma, be it economic, uh, job loss, um, uh, relational health loss, isolation stuff. Um, you know, this stuff is real and we might've been able to have sort of mediocre systems in place for how we took care of people pastorally two months ago, because in the very least we'd see them on Wednesday night and we could ask them a question. Right. Um, we don't have that. We don't have that system in place right now. Yeah. And so the, the stakes are higher and our systems are, are sort of more anemic and we've got to fill that gap. Now that feels very clear. I think that's excellent because you, when you are able to name um, the issue that we need to really address, then it sort of creates a desperation or a, or a strong desire to figure that out. And like, you know, the, the uh, we were talking before, like the, the caveman can name the problem of the saber tooth tiger. Right? Like, <laughs> right. Right. There's a crisis. It's right there. Like now we can say, Hey, there's a crisis. There is trauma. There's economic impact. There's people that have lost loved ones or, family members or whatever, like there's this ripple effect that will continue for a while. Um, and so we can name that. Now, when it comes to the learning anxiety and try to, trying to create that playful environment or ecosystem that allows people to try 
how would you how would you want to coach a community that is wanting to create that ecosystem of of playful experimentation and embracing a failure growth mindset kind of stuff? Like, how would you what would be a few things that you would coach them to try and uh, do to create that? Oh, it's so good. Um, and and I think you named it sort of the Carol Dweck mentality of of a learning mindset versus a fixed mindset. If um, for those who are fans of Carol Dweck, um, th- this is you know this is where we build. It. One of the things we'll say with ministry incubators is we build in an expectation of failure. Yeah. Um, uh, matter of fact, we will make a plan. Let's say there's a new sort of ministry as business um, kind of initiative that we're working with somebody on. And we will make, we will work very hard on our game plan, very hard on our financials. And then we will actually put on the calendar six months, nine months, 12 months down the line, something we call a pivot retreat. And Mm. that basically what we're saying is we're going to get back together and make new plans because our assumption is this plan is not going to work. It's just, (laughs) it's just going to get us closer to whatever our next plan is. Right. So here's our plan. We know we're going to fail on some level. So let's go ahead and plan now before we even start how to adapt and, you know, iterate through this uh, onto whatever might be. That's excellent. (laughs) It's true. So we put it on the calendar. We build failure into the calendar. Um, And I think we can do that. um, You know, you've heard this in youth ministry or in church ministry in general. We refer to these things as a pilot because people don't, they're more willing to try it if it feels like a pilot. And I think that's whatever your idea is. It's a pilot. Uh, Let's just say, listen, this is the next thing we're going to try. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> and then I'd also, if it's if for what it's worth, you know, I always like what we call input goals versus output goals. So if yeah. you're trying something new, what we can commit to um, are the things that we're in control of. What we're not in control of is, is the outcome. So we are not in charge of if 25 kids show up to our next Zoom meeting idea. But what we are in charge of is um, let's say making 40 individualized text invites to students in our ministry. Um, So my goal can be, I'm going to invite no fewer than 40 students to this thing and an individual text message. Um, I'm not in charge of how many say yes, but I am in charge of what I put into it. Yeah. No. Oh my gosh, Trey. I feel like that is um, the inputs versus outputs and what you measure, what you celebrate, what, what is, valued. I, I feel like that could be a whole nother episode. I think that, that that's something that we teach in our youth ministry classes here at Flagler uh, to say, hey, like these are the things you're in control of. These are the places in which you can be more or less faithful. Yeah. Uh, what God does with that has honestly not as much to do with you. Um, and so let's do our part and just you know trust the Lord of the harvest kind of a thing, right? I mean, like you have to let go and let the seed grow through the night. So um, I think that's excellent. So when it comes to this sort of work uh, of managing change, talk to me about a couple practical um, either rhythms or things that people can do to, to kind of create the space in their life. I mean, if somebody came to you right now and said, hey, I've got a couple hours a week back uh, where I'm not you know, sitting in another committee meeting or I'm not uh, you know, driving to and from soccer practice or something, how should I spend the, that time? What would you recommend or, or offer them? Oh man. Um, <laughs> I would, I, yeah, I'd, I'd have so many ideas for their time for other people's time. I'm happy to, um, you know, <laughs> give other people things to do. Um, sure. I, I, uh, a couple things, but one, I think just, um, you know, I keep trying to come up with 
with a thing that has that is, is a has better leverage on sort of my productivity and my ministry um, than this, and I it, it still wins every time, and that's balcony time. Balcony. Tell us what what it's um okay. So here's sort of the image, and I this is probably I mean balcony time's been around a long time. I think it was probably originally a Stephen Covey thing, but okay. um, imagine like you're working in a factory, a factory that makes widgets, whatever widgets are. Yeah. Um, and, um, and you're the best widget maker in the whole factory. Um, and so somebody comes, you know, the owner comes along and says, you know what, you're my best widget maker. I'm going to make you a manager. Um, and so now your job is to get up in the balcony of the factory and watch how the entire operation is working. Uh, the mm -hmm. reality is you're a better widget maker than anybody in the factory. So you could get down on the floor and, and, and make widgets faster than them, but the but you would not be doing your job. Um, your job oh. is to be up in the balcony, not making a single widget, but looking at the entire operation and saying, what is working? What could be better? What are our bottlenecks? Where do we want to go in the future? And so right. it's, it's this weird position where you don't do your to-do list. Like you don't do any of those things um, that are sort of nagging at you. You step back, you close your email, and you look at the larger picture and say, um, you know, where does this need to go in the future? Um, what's working? What's not? How are my systems? All that fun stuff. So balcony time. Uh, this is true. This may blow your mind. I'll spend two hours um, early on a Monday doing balcony time. And I've got a whole list of questions. Um, really? it's, about, it's about two weeks out. Um, it's about my vision documents. Um, it's, it's about, it's about clearing off my desktop, my literal desktop and my computer desktop. Mm -hmm. Um, it's doing like all of these things that are none of my actual to do's. They're just setting me up to order my to do's well. Um, yeah. and believe it or not, even though I'm burning two hours at it, um, my week is 10 times more productive when I've done balcony time versus when I have not. Wow. So, so take yeah. part of this time back to step back from the, the, you know, the craziness of the calendar, which has been, a lot of it's been cleared. I mean, we're filling it with multiple Zoom calls, right? But, oh, yeah. um, you know, take a step back to say, am I doing the things that are most important to me? Am I doing, uh, are my inputs, not the outputs that I'm not in control of, but are my inputs faithful? Am I doing the things that are sort of core to who I am? Um, and am I making time for those things, right? So, uh, to me, one of the things I hear in what you just said is if you're looking two weeks out and you care about your wife and two children, which I know you do, mm -hmm. you're going to be looking at that calendar thinking to yourself, have I done a good job as a husband and a father over the next two weeks, according to my calendar? Am I planning to do a good job, right? Or am I gone the whole time or disconnected or am I just working way too much or whatever? And you'd become aware of that and be able to make changes two weeks out versus in the moment being like, oh, sorry, I did that again. You know, um, you can really catch yourself. I think that's a, I it's love so that. True. I love it. It's so true. It, sh it would be a shame if we went back into our new normal and basically acted like we have been up until now. Um, like we didn't leverage this moment to build in a new way of being, a new way of focusing our time, a new way of leading our youth ministries. Um, and so I just think if, if we carve out balcony time to step back and go, where do we want to go? We're more likely not to waste this moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think there's something interesting there I want to ask you about. You use the word leverage. And I think that that could be heard as, you know, this guy is on this podcast telling me I have more time. I should do more things right now. I actually think what you're saying is like, maybe we're doing a lot less, um, mm-hmm. but they're more attached to our sense of purpose or focused. And um, and that we could maybe let go of some of those things that we had just been doing because we've always done them. So um, I don't think you're trying to pile on to people that they should be even more productive now or they should get even more done. But or at least that's my guess that you're not doing that. But say a little bit more about what you mean by leverage in that way. And, and how is this, um, you know, rooted in grace as opposed to, hey, go out there and this is a time for you to really do even more. I'm so, so glad you said that. Yeah, I, no, I, uh, I absolutely don't want to pile more on right now. I think that, um, here, actually, let me just share, Justin, let me share a, a dirty little secret with you um, yeah. that we'll keep between you and I and every podcast listener. Um, yep. I'm pretty sure we only have about four hours of productivity, like real, actual, do good work productivity a day. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to lay that out there. Uh, Oh, I think gosh. it's real. I know. <laughs> Why are um, you telling me secrets, Trey? <laughs> it's just like, I, I mean, here's it. And I'm not talking about like scrolling through our phone on email and answering the easy ones or something like that. You know, like we can do that for eternity. Yeah, but I'm yeah. talking about like good work where we're sort of creating documents or doing, you know, to-do lists that we've been dreading because they're the hardest things and oftentimes the most important thing. Like I... I think we got four hours tops and everything Hmm. else is just sort of mediocre work. Like, you know, we're getting some stuff done or clearing some email, but it just doesn't matter as much. Um, I think that's true again, between you and I all the time, but I definitely think it's true as we are, you know, so many of us are trying to um, be uh, sort of home school teachers uh, parents 24 hours a day, also a professional where hopefully they can't hear your kids in the back of the zoom call kind of lives, you know? Um, and, um, that's, it's especially true right now. So part of why I think balcony time is such a gift is it reminds us of the most important things. And so I want, I want to give, uh, if I have it available to me, I want to give a good four hours to the things that matter and, and consider, you know, the other stuff gravy. Um, very similarly, uh, I, a, a rule that I've had during this sort of quarantine time, which has been more than a month for me cause I'm up in Jersey, um, yeah. is, uh, one deliverable a day, one deliverable a day. Uh, that feels doable. I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by deliverable. Like, did you write a book today? Yeah. One book a day, no more. <laughs> what are you, Andy Root? What is? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. No, I'm not. Um, yeah. What do you mean by um, one I, I, Yeah. How do you, how do you measure that? Yeah. About it? I think you got to create something. Well, it's a pretty fun. Even for me, it's still pretty. But it's it's roughly defined. But um, what I don't mean is email. Um, what I don't mean is this sort of regular upkeep stuff. I mean, you create a thing that matters for your work or ministry. So for some of us, it may be, I'm going to outline um, this year's volunteer recruitment plan, or uh-huh. I'm you know, going to get all my volunteer pool in one spot and see who's available for things. That would be a deliverable. 
And if you did that in one day, just got it ready and got sort of a plan in place, everything else after that is gravy. Yeah. And you should be satisfied and go hang out with your family or don't feel bad when your kid jumps in your Zoom call. Like just mm-hmm. just go go hang out. Right. Um yeah. and so, you know, for for some of us that are preaching on a regular basis, it could be a preaching plan. Um for some of us that are trying to work on curriculum, mm-hmm. you know, one day might be doing a curriculum outline uh in terms of what we want kids to learn throughout a year or a three-year cycle. And then another day maybe actually filling in those gaps. But I'm just talking about like one legitimate creation of a thing that matters. Right. And then and and then everything else is gravy. That's yeah. given me a lot of grace and a lot of peace uh, to feel like, okay, I, I contributed, but I don't have to sort of wear myself slick trying to squeeze eight or 10 hours of work when I'm sequestered, right. which is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I, I love the idea of just saying up front, like I cannot do um, everything the way it's been done. I mean, I just have to embrace that reality. And so, you know, what I hear you saying in all of this is that, you know, there's this balcony time about once a week where you can do this sort of critical evaluation of your calendar, maybe look back, maybe look forward, you know, uh, ask yourself some like core questions about vocation, your calling, who you are, but then also like, how am I doing these things this week? Or, you know, uh, living out of those quadrants, you know, things like that. Uh, so with the balcony time, but then also maybe even mapping out, and I imagine this is like a, a, a small version of Bakke Dean time at the beginning of every day saying, okay, what's the one deliverable today? Like right. this will be a great win of a day if I can get this one thing done and, you know, keeping that front and center and letting that be the thing that actually dictates, uh, you know, your time and your calendar for the day. So I think that's excellent. Anything else you want to add? You know, mainly just that it has brought me peace. I think one of the things, if, if we're going to be healthy, non-anxious presences in our kids' lives and our youth's lives, um, yeah. we're going to have, we're going to tend to some of this stuff. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, so often self-care is talked about in terms of like Netflix and, you know, maybe that's great for you. Um, I think self-care is a, is a, is a lot richer, uh, than just checking out. Um, <laughs> I think it's sort of setting up a system where you can do good work and you could, you could play well and you can rest yeah. well. And, and, um, that, this these rhythms have felt like grace to me. Well, then I then I've got the presence of mind and the sort of non anxious presence um, where I can lead people through difficult change because I've sort of tended to these rhythms. I love the idea because normally I would put balcony time and planning underneath sort of like administrative sensibilities, right? Right. And for me, like that's always been something that I've leaned heavily on. Like I want to keep a zero inbox on my email and I keep a tight calendar and I. I feel very structured in those ways and I want to be super productive. And I've, you know, at my worst, I've made somewhat of an idol out of that productivity. But what I hear you saying is that like, well, wait a minute, like this sort of balcony time in a way is a, like another way of thinking about self-care because I will plan to do the things that are most important to me. And then that'll give me the freedom to check out or to stop or to go and be, you know, taking care of myself or with my wife and my children or whatever it would be, you know? Um, that that's a fascinating way to put balcony time underneath the umbrella of self-care because I think you're right. Like, okay, maybe Netflix can be a part of that, but like my guess is that, you know, planning your time well and going for a run are going to be much more fruitful than another episode of the tiger King. Am I right? (laughs) I don't, had you said any show, but the tiger King, I could have gotten on board. I don't know. (laughs) 
<laughs> Never mind. Get the balcony time. Let's all as, go back to time. As an Oklahoman, you know, it just it's, it's a pretty big deal to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Okay, Trey. Uh, as we come to a close here with our time, would you tell us your deepest thoughts on Joe Exotic? No, don't do that. Oh, my gosh. Oh, gosh. No, please. Uh, what I'd love for you to do is I'd love for you to offer – a blessing or a benediction of sorts for uh, youth workers who might be listening. You know, what what sort of encouragement would you want to have uh, for those folks who are with us now? I'd love to. Yeah. Can I, um, would you give me one minute of, of sort of metaphor explanation before I step in? Can I, can I give you a little background? Because I've, I've got something I would like. Different. What's that? Are we back to the dance floor or is this something different? No, no. This is entirely different metaphor. I like my metaphors, okay. Justin. All right. Okay. <laughs> my friend, my friend and yours, Nate Stuckey, the executive director of the Farminary, um, which is, um, a, you know, a farm where theological education takes place um, at Princeton Seminary. So it's integrated farming and theological education at Princeton Seminary. Yes. Um, he he started that farm just three miles away from the campus on what used to be a sod farm. Which, um, what you need to know is, uh, being a sod farm is like the least healthy thing you could do for the soil because you grow a little grass and then you scrape off the healthiest topsoil to roll that sod up where you buy it at Home Depot. Yeah. Um, and then you plant grass and, and you grow some more and you, you, and anyway, you keep peeling away the topsoil and little by little, it's less and less healthy every year. Um, in order to get something from the soil, you've got to strip it of something and the soil has to lose. And Nate came in and started gardening and um, turned this into sort of a small scale farm. And they start um, taking compost and reinvesting in the soil every year. And I, I have a CSA with the farminary. Like we get tons of produce from the farm every year. Hmm. And, and even though the soil is producing, because he's caring for the soil at the same time, the soil is actually testing much healthier every single year. Wow. Um, so the soil is producing, but it's not, it's not a zero sum game. It's more healthy for producing. Hmm. Um, that's my blessing and prayer for every youth minister out there. As we talk about balcony time, as we talk about change management, as we talk about sort of doing one deliverable and caring for yourself, my prayer, my blessing, I, I'll say this, may you work hard. May you do good ministry. May you work your plan. May you invest in kids' lives, but may you do so in such a way that every year you, your body, your mind, your soul, your role as a uh, wife or a um, husband or a parent or a friend is just a little bit healthier than the previous year because you worked toward having better soil as you produce. Amen. Amen to that. Amen to that, Trey. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being here. And uh, yeah, man, this is great stuff. I really appreciate it. It's a joy to hang out always. Thanks so much. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices podcast. I hope that this focus on youth ministry in the midst of this pandemic uh, was helpful to you in some way. I hope that there was maybe even just one moment during this last episode, maybe the benediction or, or, or the signs of hope 
something that was a gift to you and maybe helps you carry out your work uh, that you have before you. You can follow what we're up to at missingvoices.flagler.edu, missingvoices.flagler.edu, and we hope that you are well. The work you are doing is incredibly important, and we want to figure out ways to be a part of that with you. Take care.